Today's scripture reading is from Luke 9, 28 through 36. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am, as always, grateful for those whose prayers have gone before me in preparation for today's sermon. Continuing our series on holy hardship, today's sermon will focus on the lectionary text from Luke 9, verses 28 to 36, exploring what it means for us to become more awake, more alert, and more attuned as followers of Jesus as we live in our world with its beauty and its violence. But first, I got to say, uh, I wasn't here last week, and so I didn't hear Crystal's sermon. So I got the chance to listen to it on the way down. I don't know how many of you heard it last week. If you didn't hear it, you need to listen to it. And there's a part of me that thinks it would be just fine if I weren't preaching this today. It would be just fine if we, like, wash, rinse, repeat. We would just, like, listen to Crystal's sermon every Sunday through Lent because there was so much richness, so much goodness, so much conviction, so much beauty in what I heard. And so for those of you, if you haven't heard it, I implore you to listen to it. If you've heard it, listen to it again and again and again and again. Our scripture today tells the story of the journey that Jesus made with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the slopes of what many scholars believe to have been Mount Hermon in the present-day Golan Heights. I want to invite you to consider that our story is one in which Jesus is continuing his work of training his students to become more awake, more alert, and more attuned to the world as it really is. A world in which the kingdom of God is breaking in in a new, sustainable way that is glorious. But a world also in which sin and evil are violently resisting that very kingdom. Hence, to know joy, to know glory in the real world, means we will also come to know suffering. But this suffering is not to be endured alone. And God will always be outfoxing it, 
always turning even our suffering into glory to the degree that we practice remaining immersed in the presence of the love of the Holy Trinity. I know that I need to become more awake, alert, and attuned to this reality, and this story points me in that direction. If you've ever seen pictures of Mount Hermon or been there, you know that to ascend it, you really have to want to hike up its 6,000-foot peaks. We don't know if that's how far Jesus and his companions went, but to begin with, we do need to know that for them and for us to ascend the mountain, to become more awake, alert, and attuned to the gospel and to the world as it really is required of us, requires of us a willingness to pay the price to get there. First, a reminder of the backdrop that leads up the hillside of Mount Hermon. The Gospel of Luke is not one continual chronological rendition of the life and ministry of Jesus. In many places, the pages read like a random collection of things that Jesus said and did, all that were important, but that did not all follow each other in an uninterrupted sequence. Today's scripture both is and is not one of those places. We read at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus sends out his followers to preach the good news, to heal the sick, which they do, and report back to him all that they have done with great joy and confidence. This is followed by the feeding of 5,000, yet another really, really good thing that took place in Jesus' ministry, and an indicator that the kingdom of God was here for real and for good. We get hints of this because all this activity got Herod's attention. Okay, so far, so good. But then the text shifts. We read in verse 18, once when Jesus was praying, we don't really know when this happened in relationship to the beginning of the chapter. However, we are intended to take note of how the stories are related. For beginning in verse 18, Jesus engages the disciples in a conversation about his identity that culminates with Peter's great declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, so far, so good. And even if this is not in chronological order, it certainly makes storyline sense to me. We begin with good news, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes. All that adds up in my mind to Jesus being the Messiah. But then things get weird. Now, I know that living on this side of the resurrection has its advantages and its disadvantages. And one of those disadvantages is that it's very easy for me to think that just because I've heard how the story ends, something the disciples were not privy to, I should somehow not feel as utterly confused as I imagine Jesus' followers to have been when they encountered the whiplash effects of what he says next. But I have to admit, I often feel confused in my pilgrimage with Jesus. I don't always know what the next step should be in so many parts of my life. I like straight, linear progression. I recently marked, remarked to Phyllis that as I have looked over my life, it seems that growth, for me, appears to be more of an expanding awareness of all the places I haven't grown, rather than a linear progression of my becoming more patient kind, generous, joyful, and the like. Just saying. So on to Jesus' words. Yep, you're right. I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anyone. 
And just so you know, some really bad things are going to happen to me in the next little while, and it's not going to be pretty. But after I had been killed, that's right, you heard me, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And here's another thing. If you're going to follow me, you'll have to be prepared for the same kind of journey. If you follow me, you'll have to pick up your crosses, not your Teslas. If you want to share in my glory, you'll have to be all in and prepared to suffer as a part of it. Jesus' order not to reveal his identity made sense in a certain light. He didn't want to inadvertently incite a Jewish uprising. We recall how in John's gospel, the people were going to make him king on their terms or draw out a Roman backlash. But still, you tell me that you're the one I've been hoping for and then tell me to keep my yap shut about it? It just doesn't make sense. I have to admit, if I were in that company, I would be completely confused and disoriented. Don't tell anyone. My impulse to press my advantage of power and influence when I know I have it knows no bounds. Already, we're getting a picture of Jesus' restraint, a picture of how God operates in a human body, how Jesus doesn't take advantage of his notoriety and never substitutes it for what it means to genuinely love others, even though they're going to kill him for it. If it were me, I know that all I would be thinking about is how all that goodness and beauty, all the kingdom capital that had been accrued in the opening part of chapter 9 was simply going to waste. I would not be wanting to, let alone paying attention to, all of Jesus' references to the cross, to the hard, painful, difficult things of life that are to come because I follow him. I want following Jesus to solve my problems, not create more of them. But when I consider my life and the life around me, as Scott Peck said in the opening sentence of his work, The Road Less Traveled, life is difficult. If we admit it in many ways, life is difficult far more often than it is anything else. It's not mostly healings and goodness and beauty that my attention is easily drawn to, the Washington Post has no intention of allowing that to happen. Yes, for those of us in the West, life may be more convenient, but if we are serious about serious things, then we find that life is anything but easy. And here, Jesus is perhaps training his followers to live in the real world, waking them up, alerting them to a world that is not neutral, what with evil's intention to devour us, a world in which the gospel, with its healing and generosity, will at times face what feels like withering strafing from principalities and powers outside my skin, as well as my impatient, envious, ashamed, murderous, adulterous, lying, stealing, malicious selves that reside inside my skin, that at the end of the day wants the kingdoms but doesn't want the king. And with this background in mind, we come to today's text. Eight days after Jesus begins his full disclosure exercise with his disciples, he proceeds up Mount Hermon, taping JPJ, that's James, Peter, and John. I keep getting, I'm tired of like saying Peter, James, like it's just too many, too many syllables. JPJ is what we're going with. 
He takes JPJ with him for the purpose of praying. Hmm, I wonder. It's these same three guys again. Why is it always them that get to go to the cool places? I mean, would the others not be interested as it turns out in meeting Elijah and Moses? I often find myself looking around at other people and wondering why they seemingly have lives that are more connected to Jesus than I do. Yet more revelation of how much I come to believe that I, in fact, am the center of the universe. And then there's the whole mountaineering thing. They can't pray at sea level? But of course, this would be just like me to wonder this. I want my prayer life to be convenient, easy. I don't want to hike 6,000 feet just to pray. But I think this only highlights that prayer as well is really hard work. And sometimes it takes effort to prepare my heart for that task in ways that are not easy. Not unlike the practices of Lent that make my heart softer and more available to God's work. When we get right down to it then, as Jesus is actually praying, his face changes and his clothes become as brilliant as lightning. This happened as a byproduct of being close to the Father. Not because brilliance and glory was what he was seeking. I usually get this backward. I want to know that I am brilliant, that I am detractive, that I'm adequate enough, and then the Father will want to be close to me. Jesus wasn't seeking glory for its own own sake. He was seeking his Father. This is what happens when we do the same. We are changed. We become illuminating, not because we first seek the right things, but because we first become deeply receptive to being loved by the Father. And for those of us for whom being loved by our fathers was, nor is it now, easy, We are invited to be loved by Jesus. We look at Russia and Ukraine, or we look at our Lenten series that is attending to our history in America of systemic racism, or we look in our kitchens and family rooms, our classrooms and boardrooms and bedrooms and courtrooms, and we see that we're not very good at loving each other. But I'm not good at that because I'm even less so good at receiving love, and I can't give what I don't have. As much as I want to be loved, it turns out, I'm also threatened by it when love, even in its best form, gets too close. In prayer, Jesus was not just downloading more information. He was immersing himself in the Father's and the Spirit's love, something I have to practice over and over and over. It is then that our faces, too, and not a moment before, that our faces, too, are changed. Our faces are more likely to shine with joy, with peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest, to the degree that we actively in our very bodies sense and image and feel the love of the Father. And then, Jesus' friends Moses and Elijah show up, themselves appearing in glorious splendor. The three of them are talking about Jesus' departure, 
his exodus, hearkening to the Hebrews' exodus out of Egypt. The text is referring to Jesus' death. But notice how glory, in this case, is a function of the three of them talking about it. Moses and Elijah are understood in the text to be real people, real men, not just ghosts. But they are more than that. They represent, respectively, the law and the prophets. And Jesus is speaking with them. In this way, we have yet another example of what it means to be in conversation with the Word. The Word as it is in Jesus and also in the Scriptures. But as I said, Luke does not describe Moses and Elijah as if they were specters. They were real men in real time and space. Jesus was communing with others as a way to prepare for his departure. It is in our dwelling with Jesus, dwelling in the scriptures, and dwelling in deeply vulnerable community that we too can talk about our departures. For death is the final weapon that evil wields, albeit in a limited fashion. All that is difficult about our lives is because at the end of it, we know that death is waiting for us. Nobody gets out alive. Living in this world is hard, and ultimately it is death that makes it so. But it is abiding in Jesus, the written word, and our embodied cloud of witnesses that enables us to experience joy, even glory, in the middle of our grief, in the middle of all of our departures. And we here have had plenty of those to go around. We've lost Albert, Coach, Gene, Will, others. But it doesn't stop there. We've had untold departures of all sorts of things in our lives because of the pandemic. We will see the departure of Byron and Kristen List this summer. We fear the departures that may await us about the very destiny of this church body. Not to mention all the losses that we grieve because of our cultural history of violence against people who are not like us. That kind of grief can be overwhelming and I don't like it. But in the middle of this, I will do many things to remain asleep to that grief. I avoid it, I bury it, I pretend it doesn't exist, not unlike Peter and the rest of the disciples who were very sleepy. In the middle of this brilliance going on, they're asleep. I don't get it. Somehow, it appears that during at least some, if not most, of the conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the disciples were very sleepy. I'm often sleepy to what God is doing, to his glory, not because he does not reveal it so much as I'm not awake enough to see it. They become more fully awake just in time to see the glory, but may not have heard as clearly the part about the departure. Always at the ready, Peter, our man of action, and seeing the men with their radiant selves leaving. By the way, I'm not really sure how anybody knew that they were Moses and Elijah. Like, I don't know, like they had like picture IDs or something. They were letting people know that, that this is who they were. He sees it with their radiant selves leaving, and he has an idea. Don't go. Can't we make this permanent? 
just like me. I worked very hard in life to clutch, hoard, and preserve all that I enjoy, all that meets my needs. But Peter may have been forgetting that the dwellings he wanted to build in the spirit of the Feast of the Tabernacles or of booths were to be temporary. At the end of the day, the tabernacles, the houses of the Lord that we build, are not constructed of brick and mortar and wood. No, we build our tabernacles out of the relationships we share in this community. As we know, as precious as they are, we can't guarantee that they will last forever. Like Peter, when it comes to all this, I often don't know what I'm saying. And by definition, I don't know that I don't know this which is why I so desperately need community to reveal to me the things about me that I don't see. But we also must be careful not to assume that what is happening here in the world, in the real material world, isn't important. As if because good things aren't permanent, they don't matter. And all we have to do is wait around until heaven gets here. Far from it. Jesus is not just some spiritual icon that is a good role model for us in terms of how to live. He is deeply tied to the creation that he is redeeming. Remember, Peter's vision for building tabernacles comes directly from Leviticus 23, where the Israelites were committed and, and commanded to celebrate the feast as a remembrance of God's deliverance. It also comes from Zechariah 14, where the prophet predicts that at the coming of the king, God's anointed one, all the nations would annually come up to Jerusalem and keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus came to us through a real family and a real people at a particular time and place. We don't get to make him out to be just another spiritual guide whose mission is to help us feel better about ourselves. He comes to redeem us and on his terms, not on ours. While Peter was speaking, as he was working to hold tightly to what was slipping through his hands, the cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. How often is it that just as I think that I have life figured out, just as I think I have the blueprints completed on my marriage, my work, my friendships, just when I think we're making some progress in peacemaking or racial reconciliation, I'm covered in a cloud. I can't see where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing, what to do about my job, about my fractured friendships, about how to respond to how we are processing sexual ethics here at WCF, let alone all the things on the world stage. And my usual response is also that of the disciples, that of fear. Particular things that make me anxious. I recently told my wife that I don't just have things that I'm anxious about. They're not just separate siloed things. Rather, I swim in a river of fear all the time. I merely find dozens of ways to distract myself from the water in which I'm swimming. Despite the overwhelming brilliance of whatever transfiguration I encounter, fear seems to be waiting for me just around every corner. And when that happens, as in our story, Jesus is training me, just as he was training JPJ, to listen. Even when I can't see, God is speaking and telling us that Jesus is his son, 
his delight, whom he has chosen on purpose. And we, like him, are also chosen on purpose, not by accident, not as a whim of his imagination. He loves us not because he made us. He made us because he loves us even beforehand. And we are then called, even in the cloud, to listen. Listen to him, not to our fear, not to our culture. We are called to listen to Jesus. When the voice had spoken, they were alone with Jesus. For us, be it the ecstasy of glory or the terror of our blindness, in the end, with whom do we find ourselves? If glory is to be our destiny, we must know that suffering is part of the price we will pay. Suffering that comes because of what others and the world do to us. Suffering that comes because of what we do to ourselves. And suffering that will invariably come when we pick up our crosses and allow Jesus to heal and convict us, making us more awake, alert, and attuned than ever. And remember that just as for Jesus, glory is not the goal. It is the byproduct of being in the presence of the Holy Trinity. At the end of our story, we read what to me is a curious sentence. When it was all over, the disciples told no one what had happened. Now, perhaps this is a continuation of their earlier conversation with Jesus and his command to say nothing about being Messiah, and they now had plenty of evidence for that. This experience on the mountain certainly would have validated who he was, and they may have been even more nervous about disobeying him. Moreover, they didn't leave the mountain until the next day. Who knows what all four of them talked about and processed. There are times when God meets me and so upends my understanding of him in such a good and beautiful way, mysterious ways, but that I do not fully comprehend at the time that before I can talk about it with everyone else, I need to digest and metabolize what I've ingested allowing the Holy Spirit the opportunity to use moments both of glory and suffering to even more so take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Jesus did not bring JPJ up the mountain just to give them a chance to meet famous people. He brought them up to teach them, to train them, to awaken them from their slumber to bring them to alertness to the reality of the world and to attune them to his voice and that of his father. Yes, to give them an Instagram moment of a lifetime and selfies with two of the biggest Hebrew rock stars, but mostly to let them know in an embodied visceral fashion that glory is a byproduct of costly obedient work that will occasionally even often be punctuated by great joy, but that will often require great effort. Effort that is harder than we think it should be. For to do this, it will often require hiking 6,000 foot peaks. It will require crucifying the parts of me that look and sound nothing like Jesus. But as we like to say in my business, the brain is willing to do a lot of hard things and can do them for a long time 
as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. As we work to become more awake, alert, and attuned to God's glory and the work he is doing, may we also, when the cloud descends, as it will, be ever more committed to hearing his voice in prayer and in the scriptures, pointing us to Jesus who we encounter in the body of believers who are sitting next to and all around us, such that even as we prepare to descend the mountain, we will do so in comfort and confidence that the Holy Trinity will surely complete the good work they have begun. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.